This is the audio-only version of MedTwitter This Week. If you're interested in seeing the full video, please check us out on YouTube, Periscope, or Twitter. Let's hit it. All right, welcome back. My favorite tweet of the week is from Crystal Nora here. So it says, here's a list of things Mad Ed leadership can do to address the times. Obviously, when we live in, in a very difficult time, there's been a lot of things going on that I think need to be talked about. And so she goes on to say, this is just me thinking out loud, happy to hear thoughts of others. And now instead of me just reading this, I actually have Crystal Nora here to be able to talk about her points and to maybe go into a little more detail. So. Crystal, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you spending the time with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this really important topic. So do you want to first uh, go through, um, discuss sort of the circumstances behind this tweet and before we go into more detail? Absolutely. Um, so I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that the pandemic has definitely changed the way that we are all operating in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, but for many Black Americans, honestly, for many people of color, I think we're also experiencing this pandemic in a really unique way, especially when we're thinking about the type of disparities that COVID is reproducing. And then within the last couple of weeks, we've also seen that police brutality and police violence has not taken a break um, just because the pandemic is happening. And so with the recent murders of Black Americans in this country, I think it's even more important that we are very direct in our efforts to be anti-racist, especially people who are in medicine and really interact with people daily who really come to us with a lot of pain and hurt and look to us for help. Now, it's not just how we as physicians, we as human beings are reacting to all of this, but this was very pointed towards more higher level institution, including special med ed. Uh, yeah. Is there a reason why you, you specifically chose our, our, our med ed institutions, the, these program directors and, and maybe their, their social media accounts or even just general like probably email statements or whatnot? Absolutely. So I think it's reason, it's important to focus on medical education leaders because they literally are the ones who are shaping and forming the next generation of healthcare professionals. So the only reason I know to think about diabetes in the way that I think about diabetes is because someone taught me how to think about diabetes, right? And same thing when it comes to race in medicine and racism in medicine. I'm thinking about it in a certain way and how I'm thinking about that is largely informed by my educators. And so it's even more important for people who are really just introducing us to the field of medicine, that they are cognizant of the ways that race and racism actually shapes their curriculum and how that will influence me as a learner within that system. Excellent. Now, do you want to go through some highlights of the points that you wrote in your, in your med thread? Yeah, of course. So I can take a look. I listed a lot of things, actually. Um, uh, I know. Not... <laughs> so I talk about them unless you feel that you want to in case this is, you know, this is an open forum. Um, definitely, I, th I think the first two that you listed were a statement of support and mental health support. So do you want to talk about the statement of support a little bit? Because uh, something that you're very, that you wrote in there saying explicitly naming racism and police brutality, in which case I think there has been a lot of feeling that institutions have to say something, but they may not explicitly say it. So why do you feel it's important that they be explicit? Well, one, no one likes walking around on eggshells. And I think in medicine, one thing that we are always told in our presentation is if you've got something 
you to say, say it, be direct, name the problem that you're trying to solve, right? It would do me no good to try to talk around diabetes as the sugars or, you know, something's not right with the glucose. Like I call it what it is that way I and everyone else can be on the same page as far as addressing it, which is why I think it's important to not just say, this is a very difficult time or this is something that we have to really think about as far as social justice and the social determinants of health, but be really specific. We're talking about racism and police violence. And this isn't unprecedented, right? So the American Public Health Association had a campaign against racism. I think that was Dr. Kamara Jones's um, tenure as president. And we also think about just public statements that even the AAP has put out, naming police violence and brutality is something that medicine should focus on. So it's not like I'm asking med ed leaders to do anything that's brand new, but maybe new for their institution by saying, these are the exact problems that we're trying to tackle. And I think by naming it, we're going to tell people it's okay to say words like race and racism because we wanna fight against those things that are harming our patients. And so we need to be very clear in how we're talking about it, which is why I thought it was really important that institutions not just talk around the issue, but say, these are the exact things that we wanna face and talk about. Excellent, excellent. But you also go on to discuss like, you know, not, instead of just naming the issue, but like how we should approach the issue. Do you want to highlight some of those points? Exactly. So I think it's important to, of course, name the issue, but I think we can't just stop there, right? Because it does no good to have a statement of support and then not actually feel that support, which is why I talk about things like making sure that there's adequate mental health resources. I know that this week for me has just been incredibly stressful. It's hard to turn on the news, to get online, to talk to people without just seeing images that are really traumatic, without feeling like, oh my goodness, like my heart is breaking over and over again. And it's important that we not just say we're here for you, but are very tangible in the ways that we're here for you, right? So is that, does that look like having access to mental health resources and saying that this was not just going to be available, but it's going to be accessible to learners and residents and faculty and staff, right? I think it's important not just to say that we are thinking about anti-racism and we're naming racism, but we're going to actually take a look at our curriculum and say, are there any ways that we can challenge race-based assumptions? So I think in the tweet, I just try to outline like what are some really practical steps in making sure that med ed is moving in the right direction as far as not just recognizing a problem but actually finding solutions to address them. Excellent and you know probably especially in the light of COVID-19 a lot of these mental health resources have already been identified so it should not be hard for them to sort of uh, tailor it in this way in addition. So your next exactly. week talked about you know security presence on campuses uh, I think that, that was sort of I, I think that's sort of a, a no-brainer but obviously being able to express to um, you know, the student body or our learners that this is something that they find that that's important, I think is interesting. Um, so the next, uh, next couple of things are in terms of auditing curriculum and then looking for funds in order to allow these curriculums to sort of expand. Do you wanna talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So one of the things that happened when I was a first year medical student, and I think a couple of other of my black classmates and I noticed is that we were getting all of these lectures about dermatology, but we never saw images of people of color. So it was always just like white skin with presentation on white skin. And that bothered us because I went into medicine because I wanted to serve communities that are traditionally underserved. And a lot of those are black and brown communities that don't have white skin. And so that was something that my classmates and I took upon ourselves to meet with our curriculum committee and say, hey, like we need to change this. And so I think it shouldn't just be on students to say, hey, I'm noticing something's wrong with our curriculum here. We're not talking about presentations on skin of color. We're not talking about 
why is it that we're using different metrics for black people versus white people versus Asians, right? Like, should we disaggregate data for Asian Americans? I mean, there's so much we could be talking about. And I truly feel like having a health equity lens will really enable people to look at their curriculum and say, are we missing the mark here? Or are we doing everything we can to make sure that we're not reproducing the harms of medicine? And so that's kind of why I specifically say, like, it's important that we audit our curriculum. We take a look, what is it exactly that we are teaching students? And then as far as like funding offices of diversity and inclusion and just trying to think about effective programming, I think it's important that you put your money where your mouth is. And there is a lot of energy coming from students right now. I mean, I think COVID just really exposed that how many medical students are willing and able to do the work to serve their community. And I think just, again, providing grants. Right? If there are programs that you can't hold because you know, we're having to move everything virtually, that may free up some fun to really fund some student initiatives, to do the research on your own curriculum, to think about what ways that your med school is becoming a good anchor institution and really taking care of the community that surrounds it. So I think funding and auditing resources are two really, I wouldn't say easy ways, but are two um, accessible ways for institutions to kind of look at what they're doing. Excellent, excellent. Um, I think the next tweet I think very, was, was actually very interesting, you, you talked about meet with community leaders and make them part of the leadership. Community grants sort of discussed a little bit, you know, opening space for community meetings. Like, do you want to describe sort of what you sort of envisioned in, in these types of um, these meetings? Yeah, of course. So when, so I am um, a student leader within the AANC and one of the meetings that I went to talked a lot about institutions becoming anchor institutions. That it's important that we recognize that when we are serving a community, we're not just serving a community of learners, we're obviously serving a larger community, right? So there we are not just isolated, you know, little med schools or hospitals or institutions that don't interact with our surrounding community. I think about my community of Houston where I went to medical school, like third ward where George Floyd is, you know, spent a lot of this time like is near where I trained and so it's important for us not to say we are the largest medical center in the world or Houston Texas but to think about okay what kind of health disparities actually exist in our own backyards what are the people of Houston wanting to see out of a space like a huge medical center right what kind of research do they need what kind of problems that do they see right and I think there's a lot of work that's being done with a lot of traditional like faith, church-based, you know, kind of partnerships saying, okay, like, what are the things that your congregation needs that we can probably bring over? Um, I think that's a really great way of thinking about it, but I think um, the Gold Humanism Society at Penn, I think it was Penn, yes, um, also did some really great um, work on during Solidarity Week about just bringing community members into their actual space. And I wonder, too, like, how many times has just, like, a community member actually visited your medical school's campus? Do they feel like that's a place that's accessible to them. Like, can they use it for their own community meetings? Do you have those kinds of partnerships in place? And so that's kind of what I was referencing at, um, as far as like meeting with your community members and what it might look like. Excellent, excellent. Um, let's see. And you also talked about land acknowledgements and honor native indigenous communities. So what, 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 what did you, what, what exactly do you mean by that? So um, I recognize that, so my family is an immigrant family, so I'm first generation American, um, but I recognize that this land that we are built on is not of our land. And there, there's a lot of colonialism that happened. That's actually the foundation of how this you know, country came to be. And so I think it's important that we recognize that there were indigenous communities that were present on our land before we even came here, before our med schools were even built. And when we look at the numbers of Native American and Indigenous people in medicine, 
the numbers are like less than 1%, which is absolutely shocking. Um, and Under, I think it's underrepresented, right? Yes. Like just, you'll see like a zero and you're like, obviously like they exist, but it's like, where? Um, and I think that's one of the issues that medical schools really need to tackle is like, why aren't we seeing higher numbers of representation of natives in medicine? So I think it's just important to say, hey, you know, like this land used to be, you know, inhabited by this group of people. And it's important that we recognize that their history was here and we try not to erase them. Um, because it's that land that allows us to build our labs and build our medical schools. And it wasn't a process that was peaceful. It was a quite violent process of taking that land away from Native Americans. So I think it's important we just recognize our history. Excellent. And I, I, what I think interesting is that so in your last tweet, I think this is the last tweet. I, I don't think it was. <laughs> I tweeted a lot, so. <laughs> uh, so uh, and there was definitely a lot of discussion afterwards. Uh, you talked about using commitment to health equality as a metric for promotion. I find that very interesting. And um, as someone who you know obviously has to think about promotion, you know there are a lot of discussions about even what you know social media plays into all these other things for for promotion, but talking about commitment to health equality uh, or health equity, I, I think is, is an interesting prospect and something that I don't know if I've ever really thought about that way, but um, is, is this something that you've seen or how did you come up with this, this thought of making it part of uh, this sort of promotion thought? For me, one of the things that I worry about when I'm being really vocal and active in thinking about social justice and thinking about being anti-racist is how will this really this work impacts my career. Like I'm very vocal about wanting to be involved in medical education. And I think something that I hear a lot is make sure that you aren't just doing black stuff, um, that you're not just focusing on black people. Like, you know, medical schools want to see that you're working on all sorts of issues. And that really kind of hurts me because I feel like the work that I'm doing and I want to continue to do in my career should be valued by everyone. And I want to make sure that there are people who look like me, who want to study communities that are made of black and brown and, you know, immigrant communities also are getting that work recognized in the same way that someone who might be doing some basic science research or is doing some pathophys research is honored and recognized. And I think also health equity as a lens, not necessarily as a destination, um, not necessarily um, as like this one thing that you do. I think it can be integrated in everything that we're doing. So even if you're doing quality improvement, Health equity can be part of quality improvement, even as we're talking about diversity. Like diversity is not just the work of an office, it's the work of everyone in the system. And so I have never worked on a promotions committee. I've never sat in and said, yes, you get to be full professor. Um, but I would hope those are the kinds of conversations that are happening. And if not, will start to happen after we kind of have more of a really honest conversation about representation within medical education. I completely agree, completely agree. Um, anything else you want to let us know? So things that maybe you weren't able to fit in the tweet or weren't sure about, or even in the discussions surrounding, or even your, your other discussions throughout the week over surrounding, surrounding um, this entire situation? I mean, I've got a lot of thoughts, which is why I've got a lot of tweets. So it's a little hard to keep up. I was like, which tweet is he referring to? Um, I just want to acknowledge that I, I realize this isn't easy. Um, and this is really uncomfortable. And 
academic medicine and medical education can move really slowly. Um, and I recognize that from an institutional level, from you know, national level of medical education, that this work is not easy work, but it is valuable work and it is necessary work. And I think that we all have a role, whether you are a medical student who's just really eager, or whether you're someone who has been involved in medical education for years, we can always learn. I think there should always be a fire underneath our feet telling us we can move forward, forward as a pace, but sometimes I think we just gotta really react knowing that it might be uncomfortable, but it's worth it. Excellent, excellent. Well, so I'm gonna um, discuss a couple of my favorite tweets of the week. Um, obviously, um, one of my favorite people to follow is Dr. Kimberly Manning. Uh, she had just tons and tons of tweets. Uh, one that just came out today, which is the, the 1st of June, um, she, was ta uh, she talks about a discussion she had with her, her son. And, she, um, and they were talking about, I think her son asked, what, would it be safe for him to ride his bicycle and do things like, like they used to? And it really uh, it made her think about sort of break, broiling it down to like a problem representation on how to approach the current situation. And um, I really encourage people to, um, to seek Dr. Manning out. Um, I'm sure most people already follow her and listen to her and read, read her fantastic narratives as well. As well. But she had, she's had multiple tweets over the last week. I think they're all great, but this one in particular I really enjoyed. So I'll, I'll show it, um, I'll thread it below in a link. Um, another one was from Dr. Uh, Yihan Yang, which I've been following because she has a bunch of um, discussions about medical education and curriculum building. Um, but her, her tweet from today, uh, or I guess yesterday, my days are getting all mixed up, but her tweet from, uh, from a couple hours ago was talking about um, deep listening. So I, I really encourage people to check that out. Uh, I thought it was a really great discussion about the levels of deep listening and how, and how, you, how you can work on getting yourself there. Um, the last tweet I wanted to highlight was actually from the Curbsiders. Um, I think a couple of episodes ago, there was a lot of discussion. Uh, Dr. My friend, Dr. Stuart Brigham had his rules for rounding. And within that, um, it was recently published on the Curbsiders website, what exactly they were. In that, he also talked about Dr. Adam Sifu's diagnostic reasoning yellow card, which I love this yellow card, and anytime it can come up, it's always fantastic. So, you know, the things in the yellow card is, so if you're on rounds, what, what gives you a yellow card is, one, presenting fewer than three possible diagnoses for a problem, for a problem. two, suggesting an evaluation without a differential diagnosis, Three, failing to present an argument against your favorite diagnosis or failing to identify data you disregarded to make your diagnosis work. Uh, four, excluding a diagnosis based on the absence of a sign or symptom. And five, failing to obey the law of parsimony. So I really encourage people to check out Stuart's fantastic like rules for um, rules for rounding as well as uh, reread Dr. Dr. Sifu's diagnostic yellow card. So done with my sort of my other honorable mentions for the week. Now, Dr. Nora, do you have any favorite tweets that you wanted to share with everyone before we go? Yeah, like I said, it's still a bit weird being called Dr. Nora. I was like, wait, that's me. <laughs> um, so I will highlight uh, three tweets that I really enjoyed. Um, one is from Dr. Boyd, who is a pediatrician out in California. And her tweet is, one in 1,000 black men and boys will be killed by the police in their lifetime. And one in 1,000 is also the mortality rate for measles. And talking about if we are so vigilant about measles, Shouldn't we also be vigilant about police violence and brutality in the same way? Um, another tweet that I really enjoyed reading because it just made me think about how much racism is kind of intertwined in every step of our patients' lives is from Max Jordan. He is a medical student over at Yale. 
and it said on the 29th of May, today is Erica, Erica Garner's birthday. She had been turning 30. She died of dilated cardiomyopathy um, after five months after childbirth and three years into fighting the machine and people who killed her dad, Eric Garner. And so it's important to think about all the ways that racism really kind of interfaces with a patient's life. And when I say patient, I'm really talking about the larger community. Um, and the last one is from Derek Paul, who is a student in California, I believe. And his was talking about how black academics know that they're at risk when they speak up about race and racism and how it's important for everyone to also continue to speak up because it relieves them that pressure um, about being worried about speaking up about racism. So again, this is all of our work. This isn't just one person's job. I think it's something that's possible for all of us to do. So those are three voices that I wanted to highlight. Fantastic. And you'll give me links to those tweets so I can throw them below. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, I, I really, really appreciate you um, spending the time to talk to me. I'm happy that you're one of my new teammates as well on the Cribsiders, right? <laughs> yes. What, what are you going to be doing for the Cribsiders? I will be doing everything I can to help out. Um, I'm on Instagram for Cribsiders, so you should follow us on Instagram, um, and we'll be helping out, um, assisting producing a couple of episodes here and there. Excellent. And I've been trying to convince her to take over the Facebook. <laughs> uh, you're trying to give me to make a commitment on camera. I see you. <laughs> and I will talk to you afterwards about it. <laughs> All right, we'll do it offline. Well, All right. Thank you so much for spending the time to talk to me. I think it was a very enlightening talk. You're so well-spoken, and I'm, I'm so, so happy that we have another new doctor who's just so fantastic, and I look forward to working with you in the future. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Everyone, thanks for following along. We'll see you on the next one. Make sure you like and subscribe. And make sure you follow us on Twitter as well. And um, we're still working on getting this as a podcast. So it's on Anchor right now. Hopefully it'll be on Apple Podcasts soon. So have a good one. Bye.